Matthew, the fifth chapter, and we want to read verses 13 through 16. Very, very familiar, very timely, and I believe very appropriate. Matthew 5 and verse 13. Let's read the word of God. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. My subject this morning is shake and shine. It's time to shake and to shine. Here we have two very powerful agents presented by the Lord in which He gives you your identity. Have you ever heard of an identity crisis? When someone doesn't really know what they are to do or to be. They can't self-identify. From a psychological standpoint, Everybody goes through that at some point in their life. It might be early, it might be later. And then sadly, there are those that never latch on to their, their true identification. Listen, you might see this in the form of a young person who uh, presents themselves in a way that might be flamboyant or causing them to, to stand out. Uh, I'm not talking about you know, somebody that's you know, good in sports and and they're, you know, they're, they do their thing, you know, they use their gifts. I'm talking about the appearance of someone. You know, maybe they've got a, 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 strange, <laughs> a strange appearance as opposed to others. The funny thing is that person who has the strange appearance could uh, be just like others who do the same thing. But a lot of times, I'm not saying every time, but a lot of times that is a, an indication of somebody who's trying to self-identify. And then there is an identification process by which a person finally figures out who they are. That's a glorious thing. That's a glorious thing. To figure out your purpose. And I don't mean to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be a farmer. I don't mean that. I'm talking about just the inner core of figuring out who you are. Isn't it wonderful to know that regardless of your age, young or old, that Jesus has helped us along the road to self-identification? He says, you are salt And you are light. And with salt, it means we are to shake, to spread that salt around. And with light, it means we are to shine, to shake and to shine. First of all, let's talk about salt, which, of course, primarily has to do with taste. It also has to do with preservative. Yes, I think you could look at it either way. But salt primarily has to do with taste. And this is the shake part of salt. Now, notice he says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the the good taste of the earth. As God looks at it, now as the wicked look at it, or just the general nominal non-spiritual world looks at it, they might look at you and say, well, you got a bad taste. Well, that's true. It's okay to have a bad taste when it comes to the things of the world, to, to leave a bad taste in the mouth of the world. And I don't mean to slap somebody or insult somebody, but the spiritual things of God... are not salt to the world in general. You understand? But when God looks upon you shaking your salt, 
He sees it as a preservative. He sees it and experience, God experiences it as a good taste. And other children of God have a good taste also. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But here's the sad thing. If the salt have lost his savor or savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. Now let's talk about the definition of the word savor, which this is another word. Sometimes I get definitions of word. It leads me to other words that I don't know. And so I'll look them up. The definition of savor is insipid, which basically means to be void of taste or spirit. Now, if we're not shaking as salt, if we're not shaking, then we would be void of taste or spirit. And this is funny now. The root word of savor or insipid, the root word is blockhead. It makes me think of Charlie Brown. You know, Lucy called him a blockhead. And the root word of blockhead is to shut the mouth. In other words, have nothing to say. Nothing to say. You don't have any, you can't say anything because you're a blockhead because you've lost your savor. It's useless, you see. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, no matter what the cultural climate, the political climate, no matter what the future holds or what the past has done to us, may we never be in such a position where we have nothing to say. And some, you know the old saying, actions speak louder than words. You know, that is a speech right there, how we act, how we respond. How many people, how many disgruntled and angry people, even before, say, the election and after you know, one side of that, you knew it was coming. You know, one side's going to boast and brag and belittle and berate. And another side's going to, you know, be sad and down and, and not happy. You know, you knew it was coming. Think about the reactions that are out there. I just don't even want to see them. And how sad it is for children of God to react to negative things or things that don't go their way by ranting and getting angry and so forth. That is losing your savour. You become insipid. You're void of taste or spirit. That's basically you're having your mouth shut. As opposed to... Losing the savor as opposed to being good for something. He says you are good for nothing if you lose your taste, if you lose your savor. He says the opposite of that would be good for something, right? Good for nothing means to avail nothing. And it made me think of the verse of Scripture that says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, I I don't have a, a voice in politics. I don't have a voice in the culture. You have a voice with God. You can pray to God. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It accomplishes much. You know, it made me think of the book of Revelations, the third chapter, 16 and 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the red letters addresses the church at Laodicea. And he said their attitude was that they had need of nothing. And I'm going to tell you, when you have the attitude that you have need of nothing, then you are good for nothing. Think about that in terms of prosperity. That is our greatest persecutor. When we feel like, you know, the bills are paid, you know, everything is is in shape. You know, I've got money in the bank. I've got food in the pantry. And and nobody's saying, well, we don't want that, of course. But remember, keep it in perspective that your prosperity can be your greatest persecutor. And that's what the Laodiceans did. They had lost their savor. They were, doesn't that go along with what the Lord says? The Lord says, I will spew thee out. I will vomit you out. Because when he tasted them, they tasted lukewarm and distasteful to the Lord. (laughs) There's some things that I don't eat that are not bad things. But when I think about them, I get a lump in my throat. (laughs) And I, I should name those to you so you won't ever fix those for me. But nonetheless, there's some things that it just gives me a lump in the throat. And I think, I don't want to taste that. You know, when, when the Lord tasted the Laodiceans who said, 
We are rich. We are increased with goods. We've got everything like we want it. We're, and we're good Christians. <laughs> that gave the Lord a lump in the throat. He said, I'm going to spew you out. You make me sick. There was no savour. They didn't taste good. Does that make sense? We don't want to be that way, do we? And it says, notice, it says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out. I'll never forget There was a place where my grandmother McCool would burn her trash. Yes, back in the days when people burned their trash. (laughs) And so she'd take all the burnable stuff and she didn't have, she had nowhere near as much as as we do. And and that's a whole other subject, but for another day maybe. But nonetheless, I've joked and said, you know, we're some of the trashiest people around. (laughs) So nonetheless, grandmother McCool would take her trash out. She'd walk out past the barn and she'd go out there right by the garden. I always wonder why she put it right next to the garden. But I'd see her there standing many times with her little, her little stick, you know, and she'd be tossing up the, the good-for-nothing trash that she had burned right out there in a little bitty pile. Sometimes I'd go visit with her, talk with her, but you'd see her out there very often. Because what she was doing is she was throwing out that which was good for nothing. That's not how we want to be. Is it? We don't want to be like the salt that was good for nothing, that had lost its savor, it lost its potency, or it lost its ability to influence. See, if the if the salt loses its savor, it's uh, it's it's insipid, or it doesn't have any uh, ability or power within it to do its job, then it's good for nothing. Notice he says it's nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men. Think about that now in terms of what you face in the climate that's out there today. And I'm not just talking about the recent election and politics and all that type of stuff. And look, let me go on the record as saying, I think this needs to be said. I've had people through the years from time to time, especially writing in the paper and doing the things, you know, on the radio, they would say, well, you, don't, you don't have any business in speaking on politics. When I, when I speak about what we see as politics, I'm not coming from the angle of my opinion. I'm coming, I am, I am processing politics through the lens of the Word of God. And God's Word is very clear on, there's very bright, clear issues in the Word of God that the Lord says, this is an absolute clear thing. I've given this to you before, but I don't want to be like the watchman on the wall, especially when I see so many young people, and I'm not talking about our young people, that are lost in this abyss. But in Proverbs where it says that the Lord hates seven things, one of those things that he hates, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Caesar's role, it says the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. And that is abortion, you see. I don't want anybody to come back to me when I'm an old man, older old man, and say, Brother Tim, you never told us what God's word said about the murder of the unborn. And that's not the only place, by the way. We talked about that at length a few weeks ago. I've told you, I've become a one-issue voter when it comes to politics. Now listen, you realize that there are some, there's even some Democrats out there that are pro-life. There's a few, there's not many. You may have to thread this needle even more down the road, especially our young people. If you will hang your hat on that one issue, the other issues are important, don't get me wrong, But that issue is of paramount importance. Pro-life, not pro-murder. And it's not about a political position. It's about what the Word of God says. And if somebody says, well, it doesn't really make it clear. It makes it clear. How long do you want to study about it? How long do we want to look at it? I know I'm preaching to the choir. But I'm not preaching politics. I'm preaching life. And God says, I hate hands that shed innocent blood. You You want to know one reason why ultimate judgment may already be upon but definitely will come upon a nation. It's when they murder the innocent. 
And we have legislated it. We have approved it. Now, I don't, <laughs> that's another little sidetrack, but let me tell you something. It's not a sidetrack. When you look at the numbers and you see that 70 million plus people voted for murder, that's the platform. That's sad, that's negative, but at the same time, what is it, 68, 69 million voted for life? Hey, we've got some evangelizing to do, don't we? <laughs> you see that? You can look at the negative all day long, but a great host of millions of people, under, I believe, understood that the Lord hates the murder of the innocent, and they voted for in, for faith, the favor of life. That's good. That's a great thing. We should look at the positive and not the negative. <laughs> you know, I've told you all the story about mom. She had that catch in her back. She is one of the most positive people I've ever known, if not the most positive person I've ever known. And she had a terrible catch in her shoulder. And so she was coming out the door a few years ago, and she fell and fell on her shoulder. You know, she got up, and she was like, oh, oh boy, it's better. I, you know, maybe I need to fall again, you know. <laughs> That's positive right there, isn't it? So she's looking for opportunities to fall again. Maybe she'll feel better. Let's be on the positive side. A lot of people in this nation, beyond the political, um, beyond the political end of it, a lot of people in this nation supported saving the life of the innocent. Isn't that great? That's great. So don't just look at the negative. Look at the positive. Now, off of the little side note, which is a very important side note, he says, you're thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Don't be trodden under the culture. Don't be trodden under the politics. Don't be trodden under by who's in office or who's not in office or who won or who didn't won. Don't be trodden by the coronavirus. Don't be trodden by these things that, that will trod you down because they'll stamp out your salt and your light. You see? Listen. I've got this huge library that I inherited there at the office, at my law office. And I've got all these books from decades past. I mean, I don't know what, to, I didn't know what to do with them. You can't, I tried burning them, and you know how that goes. A, bur, a book just smolders, especially when it's that thick. It'll smolder for probably a thousand years. <laughs> and so I thought, what am I going to do with all these books? I've tried to put them on the internet and say, hey, here's some great books for lampstands, you know, bookends. Nobody. Nobody wants these old books. So you know what I did? I got some holes in my yard right at the corner. And I took about 60 or 70 of those books, and I, I, I talked to Brother Cole about it first. I said, you know, you think this will work, you know, just to hold, you know, from washing? Yeah. So I put those books in several places on the farm where it was washing and covered it over with dirt. Now they're trodden underfoot of men. That's kind of weird, but it worked. <laughs> think of all those words and all of that knowledge that's now being trodden underfoot of men. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let what God's given you, what God's blessed you with, the knowledge He's given you, don't let it be trodden under the foot of men. You see? It means to be rejected. If you have tasted that Christ is good, and you have, you believe the truth of God, and you love the Lord, if you've tasted that, then you should be a good taste in the mouth of others, in the lives of others. Okay? You've got to shake. It's time to shake. It's past time to shake. And if you're already shaking, shake a little more. <laughs> and lest anybody on the podcast who hears us later and jumps in at that part, we're not talking about dancing, okay? <laughs> we're talking about shaking the salt that God has given you. You are salt. Let's talk about light. I love this little portion of Scripture, 14, 15, and 16. He says, you are the light of the world. Notice he starts off with a big picture. He says, you're the light of the world. Like he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He says, a city set on a hill, he's narrowing it down. 
to a city set on a hill. That's a little more narrow than the light of the world. And then he says, not only that, let your light, uh, he says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on the candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So he goes from world to city to houses within that city. Isn't that something? And it all starts, you, you, notice the, you, know, you notice the digression there? It's not a progression, it's a digression. He goes from the big picture of the world to the next smaller picture of a city and then to the tiny little picture of your house and my house. It all starts right there in the home. He, notice he didn't, if it was like many think today, it would read like this. You're the light of the world and uh, you're the city set on a hill. And now get busy and change the, the political climate, change the cultural climate. You see, that's not what he says. He says, you need to change your home. You see, it goes down to the home. Isn't Jesus Christ's words the, like the way better, not like, but way better than the front page news? We got this problem. We got that problem. What's the source of this problem? What's the source of that problem? Jesus says that the source of our issues goes down to the home. Is our candle being put under a bushel? Let's talk about this. Because I just recently stumbled across this and I thought it was very interesting. He says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Now you think about the people he was talking to. Just ordinary, average, village-dwelling people, just like you and I, just ordinary you know, citizens, you know, wives who worked in the kitchen, uh, men who were in and out of the home and knew about you know, what went on in the kitchen. And notice he says here that nobody lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. A bushel was a measuring. It was a, the classical Latin word, modius. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's M-O-D-I-U-S. And in the ancient Roman and Greek culture, it was a unit of grain. It was a measuring cup. Y'all hear me? It was a, it, I'm not saying it was like your little bitty measuring cup, but it was some measuring uh, device that they would put grain in to measure it for cooking and for doing the things that they do. It was a dry measure. Now, I found this very interesting. So many connections here in the Word of God and in the words that we study. You know what an anagram of Modius is? I won't let you lie in suspense. An anagram of Modius is sodium. How about that? An anagram means you can spell something else with the same word. I think that's amazing, isn't it? You know, Jesus is not just disconnecting the subjects that he's talking about. Those people understood what salt was. Sodium. <laughs> Those people understood what a bushel was and what a lampstand and what a light was. And I can just see the chuckle going through the crowd of dear sisters in that crowd who did a lot of cooking. They were, they were thinking, you know, who would, put a, who would put a bushel over the top of your candle? That doesn't make any sense. That, that, can't, that bushel is used to measure things. One of the things it was used to measure was what? Salt. You get it? That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is so connected. Jesus is so relevant. Jesus' words are so connected. Uh, we can connect with Him so, so well. And He spoke so well to the crowd there. There's no way that anything I ever say could ever come close to the way that Jesus connects. But I pray that the words of Jesus that connected with those that He spoke with connects with you from the Word of God. Those women were thinking, yeah, you wouldn't put a light under a bushel. <laughs> because, number one, you couldn't see it. It wouldn't be a benefit. One of the commentators wrote this. And I like this. From some ancient writers, we learn that only those who had bad designs hid a candle under a bushel. That in the dead of night, when all were asleep, they might rise up and have light at hand to help them to affect their hard purposes. So you could picture that bushel held over the candle. It would light just right there where they took their steps and nobody else would be able to see it. When I read that, I thought of 
I don't remember what part of Europe, but there was one of the countries in Europe. It might have been England, but I just couldn't remember. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But I remember reading a long time ago that there was a particular type of lantern that they designed and came up with whenever the bombings were going on. Because the German Luftwaffe was looking down for light to drop bombs on. And so they just basically blacked out London for weeks at a time, especially whenever they heard the, the planes coming. And then in other places, in the, say in the country, if they were going to travel between places, they needed light at night. And they had this lantern that had a device over the top of it, a big shield over the top of it that would not shine to the sky, but it would only light the ground that was down below. You see, you can put a bushel, you can put your light under a bushel. And it's not going to benefit anybody but you. Do you see that? And also, it's an indication that in those days, the, the burglars, the thieves, the, those that were going out to do nefarious acts, they needed some light. And so they would often put their candle under a bushel so they could see where they needed to go. Also, we read uh, in another commentator, it says, let your light so shine One of the commentators said this, and I like this. Our whole conduct of our life should be a perpetual commentary on the doctrine that we have received and a constant constant exemplification of its truth and power. Is that not the truth? That's what our life ought to be. From when we raise our head up off of our pillow in the morning, even though we might not be a morning person, and from when we lay our head down at night throughout the day, our life ought to be a constant commentary of, of what we believe and what God has done for us. And I tell you this, as old Baptists, as believers of the truth, we have so much incentive to demonstrate that type of light, don't we? So you see, Jesus said to them, ladies, people gathered there. He said, well, you don't take your, lamp, your candle and stick it under a bushel. No, you use your bushel to measure grain, to measure salt, to measure sodium. And you use your candle, set it on a lampstand where it belongs. So you see in their minds, they're going, lampstand, bushel, I get it. That's the purpose of a lamp, is to sit on a lampstand so that it will shine and it will light the house. You know, Jesus says in another place how great the darkness is if we let our lights, don't let our lights shine. And how, what an effect darkness will have upon our houses and upon our lights and upon our lamps. There's so many things we could go into related to that. But you think about that, how much sin. Sin is black. Sin is darkness. Sin is evil. And how many times that affects the lights that should be shining from our house. Now, Jesus says, you're salt. He says, you're light. We are to shake and we are to shine. In the remaining time, I want to follow the same uh, track, but shift gears just a little bit. Turn back to Matthew 3. And in Matthew, the third chapter, we have some wonderful demonstrations of how there are those that would shake and would shine. There's some negatives here, too, uh, because listen, remember, when you shake and you shine, you're always going to have opposition. Always. Know that going into it. But in Matthew 3 and 4, we find it's the time when John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness. And there are significantly, there are seven occurrences of one, a little word. <clears throat> the word is then, T-H-E-N. It is the Greek word tote. And it's a little different. I did a word search on this word. <clears throat> and the way that it occurs is a little different than some other, pla- uh, other places where you find the word then. It's a little different usage of the word. And it, it, the definition of it means uh, then when. <laughs> That sounds redundant, doesn't it? When, then, or then, when. It means something happened immediately after this. 
the next event, the next thing that happened. At that time, there's other places where this word is translated as from that time or at that time. A big word that I did not understand was the word consecution. And I thought, what does that mean? And it just means sequel. (laughs) You know, have you ever, listen, in the 80s, sequels were all the rage. Now, they're still a rage today, but you don't understand you didn't, if you didn't live in the 80s. <laughs> and because the reason sequels were such a rage is because there was a point there in the late 70s and 80s where you couldn't see the movie in between the next movie. <laughs> you know, I remember there was a kid. I was a Star Wars fan, still am. And so I remember there was a kid that went and saw the Star Wars movie like 150 times. And at first I was kind of envious. I was like, Man, that kid's got good parents. You know, later in my life, I was like, that kid had horrible parents if they let him to go see it 150 times. Funny how your mind shifts, isn't it? You know, you self-identify and you figure such things out. (laughs) If you never figure those out, you know, Lord help us. So there was this kid that saw it 150 times. I thought, I'm jealous of that kid because I only got to see it one time. And it was in the afternoon while an Alabama football game was going on. And we were over there uh, where the old Morrisons used to be, right off of the university. <laughs> Nobody even knows, what, except a couple of you older ones know where I'm talking about. There was a theater right over there. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And at the end, you know, I had to think back. You know, Darth Vader really didn't die. It didn't show him die. He just kind of went off and righted his ship and flew away. And then I started sweating. I broke out in a cold sweat. I thought, Darth Vader's still alive. There's going to be a sequel. There's going to be a then. There's going to be a consecution. I didn't use that word back then because I could, I could barely speak normal English back then. But still have a hard time with it today. But that's a sequel. And here comes the second one. And here comes, and by the way, it was so amazing because it was like four, five, and six. And we thought, where's one, two, and three? That drove our minds into the abyss for years. Pretty good sequels, in my opinion. Then there were the prequels. That's enough about Star Wars. But there's some horrible sequels out there now. I've seen a good movie, and then I've watched a horror. I thought, man, they, they just destroyed it on the sequel. What's the sequel of our life? You've got one sequel after another. You've got moments in which you can shake and shine or not. There's moments you could be good for nothing. There's moments that you could be putting your light under a bushel. See, what's our sequel look like? Let me give you a sequel here. By the way, there's seven times in Matthew 3 and 4 where this word then or from that time or the sequel or the next scene occurs. We're not going to go through all of them. I found it interesting. I studied this several years ago, but I found it interesting. I started looking at the other occurrences of this word throughout the scripture. And I kind of, I kept it to the book of Matthew. And interestingly, seven times here we have a sequel, a sequel, one thing occurring right after another. Don't let the chapter break throw you off at chapter four because immediately right after Jesus was baptized, he was led into the wilderness. It said he was led into the wilderness. He didn't stumble into the wilderness. You see, he was supposed to be there. And then you look over at Matthew 26 and 27. There's 21 times that this word occurs. 21 times. We don't, obviously we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'm going to mention a couple to you. Here in Matthew, the third and fourth chapter, we have it seven times. First, it's in verse five. It says, all Jerusalem and Judea, then went all Jerusalem and Judea out to hear John preach and to be baptized. Verse 13, it says, then Jesus came. Jesus came upon that glorious and blessed scene. Now, remember the political climate. Remember the culture was ruined. Remember it was, it was horrible. You think, and you say, well, things are bad today. They're not near as bad and not even close as bad as they were in the days in the political climate that Jesus came. 
How in the world could a worldwide and a world-changing movement begin in such an environment? I tell you, it can by the grace of God, and it did by the grace of God. Jesus comes upon the scene, it says in verse 13, and then it says, uh, he, he asked of John to be baptized. He was baptized in verse 15, then he baptized him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, then he was led into the wilderness. And in verse 5, it says, then the devil takes him up to a high pinnacle of the temple and, and, and tempts him. And of course, you know, there was no possibility that Jesus would ever give in. And then it says in verse 10 that then Jesus responded. And how did he respond, child of grace? How are you going to shake and shine? How are you going to live a life against the culture? And, and, and as they say, say, you know, rage against the machine, the wicked culture of this, na- of this world, of this nation. How are you going to survive that? How are you going to thrive in that? It's by the word of God, I tell you. It's the same pattern that Jesus Christ used here as he rebuked the devil with the word of God. And in verse 11, I love this then right there. It says, then the devil left him for a season. <laughs> Is the devil affecting you? Is the devil whispering in your ear? Is the devil going after you in different ways and manipulating different people and causing you to despair and causing you to want to cover up your light and not shake and not shine? Let me tell you, the Word of God is the, is the sword of the Spirit. It's that which drives away and fights away the devil. You see? That's a glorious then right there. And then I love this eighth one. It's found in verse 17. As a result of all those things, as a a result of all those sequels, it says in verse 17 of Matthew 4, from that time, same word, then, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It also says that a great light sprung up. Is that not what we're talking about? Jesus Christ listening to his father. Jesus Christ not afraid of the culture. Jesus Christ not afraid of who was on the throne, the kings that were on the throne. Not afraid of the Caesar, but going forward with just that simple sword of the Spirit. And by the way, he was the walking, living, breathing, capital W Word of God. And he has left us his Word to combat these things. So, Jesus began to preach. And light sprung up. Is that your then? Is that how it goes with you? Shake and shine? Let me show you two, a couple others that you don't want in Matthew 26. There were 21 from Matthew 26 down through 27, which involves the crucifixion of Jesus. There were 21 of these sequels. Then this happened. Then this happened. From that time, this happened. Okay? I want to I hone in on two notable sequels and think about how you don't want this to be your sequel. First of all, the first one here, it could not be your sequel because you've, been, you've had your heart tendered by the Spirit of God in the new birth. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 3. It says, Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Now look down at verse 14. And it just sounds like providence, doesn't it? There is a wicked providence. There is a devilish providence. There are things that happen that the devil puts together. But praise be to God, you've got one in heaven that can overcome every plan of the devil. In verse 14, it says, then, there's the word, the sequel. The next thing that happened was then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went into the chief priests. And he said, what will you give me that I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. That's all that the Savior was worth to them was 30 pieces of silver. Can you imagine? The Son of God who created the world, who, who made the silver, of which this silver was made of, all he was worth was 30 pieces of silver to the world. We'll pay you 30 pieces of silver to turn him over to us. In, in one sense, they should have said, we'll give you everything we've got. We, and that would not be enough to value the Son of God. It's just 30 pieces of silver. 
And then it says that Judas went to the high priest. He covenanted with them to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And you look at chapter 27. Here's the next then for Judas. It says, then Judas, verse 3, 27 and 3, then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw he was condemned, repented himself, brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. What a tragedy. How horrible. The son of perdition realizing that he is judged, that he is condemned, that he has betrayed the innocent one in his nature, knew there was might as well go on and get on with the suffering, with the penalty, because my life is forfeit. I'm telling you, obviously it was not possible for Judas to produce anything spiritual because he was not a child of God. And there's been a debate for years and years, you know, was Judas a child of God? Was he not? Ongoing running debate. Let me tell you something. The things that the Word of God says about Judas indicates that he was not a child of God. But if I'm wrong, I'll apologize to the old boy when I get to heaven one day. But from what I see from the Scripture, he was wicked. And he, he is just simply, he was among the apostles, the apostles to simply prove that man in his nature, even treated nicely and good by God, the Lord, will still betray God. It's a demonstration of his glory. So there you have Judas. Who in the world wants to reach such a sad consecution? A sad sequel. It looked good to begin with. Oh, it was just right for the priests and the Pharisees. Oh, we like this guy. We'll pay him. Everything was going great. But then look at the end of it. Who wants that? There was no shake. There was no shine. Now look at Peter. Do you want this? Chapter 26 and verse 31. Turning back over. This is some long verse chapters, by the way. In verse 31, Jesus says, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Notice the word then right there in verse 31. Then, the sequel, the next thing that happened. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go forth unto you before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. <laughs> He's basically saying, Though these other guys leave you, Lord, I'm not going to leave you. I'm your man. I'm going to be with you. And Jesus says, Verily, I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said, Though I should die with thee. Yet will I not deny thee? Likewise also said all the disciples, I said, yeah, 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 they were the yes men. Yes, that's right. We feel like Peter. We won't deny you, Lord. Look at verse 67. Watch the sequence now. Then, now we're jumping into some scenes. We're jumping into some sequels. There's a lot of good sequels in between that you need to go and look at and read. It's enjoyable. <laughs> then did they spit in his face. They spit in the face of Jesus. This is at his mock trial. And they buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. You picture what's going on here. They're... I hope none of you under the sound of my voice have ever been spit in the face. Can you imagine how you would feel if somebody came up to you and just, just spit in your face? That is insulting as it gets. I think in many ways, especially in this day of social distancing and sickness and coronavirus passing around, some people would probably fall over dead if that happened. Nobody would like that. But you think about somebody being cussed out by someone, and here's someone that just, they just spitting in the face of Jesus. It said they did spit in his face, one after the other. Spit, spit, spit. 
And they slapped him in the face. The Son of God! And they said, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? He's blindfolded, by the way. Now, Peter sat without in the palace. Don't you think that at the time that your Savior, your Master, your friend, the one who's taken you in, don't you think at the time when you see him being spit in the face that it's time to intervene? I tell you, if somebody spit in the face of one of my kids or my wife or someone that I loved or a friend or one of you, I would try to get there as fast as I can. I say, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? This is an insult. Wouldn't this be the perfect time for Peter to come busting in and say, hey, you're not going to spit in the face of my master. But Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. Is that the kind of then you want? (laughs) Peter should have died with Christ. You hear me? He should have. He should have laid it on the line. He should have count his life as forfeit for the Son of God is being spit on and he's going to be crucified. But he didn't shake and he didn't shine. You know what he did? He succumbed to the darkness. Now that's not the end of the story, praise God, right? It's not the end of the story. As Paul Harvey said, we'll get to the rest of the story in just a minute. Now wait, here in this terrible sequence, by the way, most of the thens, a lot of the thens and these 21 thens between chapter 26 and 27 are, are negative. <laughs> But let me tell you, there's one I want to get to uh, after uh, giving you a few examples here. There's one more I want to get to in this chapter 28, and it says something really good. The next then, the next sequel, the thing that happens after. And it's good news for Peter. Now you think about shaking and shining in a situation like this. Jesus is still shaking and he is still shining. He's still salt and he's still light, even though he's having his, uh, them spit in his face and buffet hit him and slap him, even when he's on the cross. Now, Think about Jeremiah, the old prophet in the Old Testament who maybe converted one person to the truth and he lived in the ruins of the epicenter of worship. Jerusalem was desolate. Can you imagine if this church, God forbid, this building burned down where we have in many of our lives, and I hope all of our lives, see this as a place for the epicenter of our worship and our public acknowledgement of God. Can you imagine if it burned down? Yes, I'd be sad. Yes, I'd kick the rubble around and say, oh, this is where I sang on that particular meeting and I heard the songs of God and this is the place where I heard brother so-and-so preached the message of God. Can you imagine Jeremiah walking around the ruins of the epicenter of worship? And yet he still shook and he still shined. He was still salt and he was still light. What about Ezekiel who was taken captive and put down in the prison in the poverty of the prison? He was still shaking and shining. What about Daniel who was captive and taken to the height of the decadence of that culture in Babylon? And he still shook and he still shined. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three there uh, who were subject to the whims of a madman? And they still shook and they still shined. What about Nehemiah many years later as he stood by the side of a monarch, the most powerful man in the world, and he had a grimace on his face. And the monarch said, what's wrong with you? And it uh, Nehemiah prayed and he said because of my people back home because of the condition of my homeland and that king not only commissioned him to go back but he gave him supplies and he also gave him an army to support him as he went back what about the little little priest Ezra (laughs) who in the abyss of abject ignorance of God it says there was no teaching priest one little man One little man stands up on a podium in the ruins of Jerusalem in the built back wall. He begins to teach them from the Word of God. And from that one little man's teaching, revival. See? Insurmountable odds. Matthew 28 and 10. Then, the sequel, 
Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Don't you love the shalls and the wills of the Scripture? Is there any possibility that his brethren are not going to see him? He says, Comfort them. Tell them I'm here. I've risen from the grave. That's the greatest sequel that has ever been. The Lord has risen from the grave. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can put Jesus back in the grave. There's no election. There's no cultural uh, decline. There's no society. There's nothing that can put Jesus back in the grave. And he says, tell my friends, tell my brethren that they will see me. I say to you, brothers and sisters today, you will see Jesus. Nothing will prevent that. He may be sooner than you think. You will see him. Nothing can put him back in the grave. Nothing can take him away from where he is. And nothing can prevent him from bringing back all of his spirit, the spirit of his people and reuniting them with their bodies. In the days before World War II, there was a man in Germany who was a preacher. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've got the book sitting right there that was written about his life. It's a long read, but it is well, well worth the read. Because when I, usually when I think of Germany, I think everybody over there was evil. No, everybody over there was not evil during that time. They were dominated by an evil man, an evil culture, an evil mindset. But there were points of light. And one of those was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was so influential, spiritually speaking, he was a theologian and a, and a preacher, that they thought so much of him that they provided an opportunity in 1939 to get him out of Germany. Because there's no question what was going to happen to him. <laughs> Eventually, it was going to close in enough to where... He, he would be put in a concentration camp. So in 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer left the darkness of his homeland and he came to America for some number of days. And after 26 days in New York City, and, and it wasn't because he was disgruntled or taken aback by anything that happened in New York City. Because his heart was in his homeland, he made the choice to go back. He caught the last scheduled steamer to cross the Atlantic Ocean to go back for certain doom. And this is what he said in a letter. Before he went back, he said, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war. This was 1939. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. <laughs> Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from Security. Y'all hear that? Bonhoeffer, years before the war concluded, said, I must be there with my people when the rebuilding of our society comes. Sadly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was also a spy, by the way, he, he, uh, he participated in at least one, maybe two, plots to assassinate the madman Hitler. Shortly before the end of the war, he was taken into a concentration camp. And two weeks before the Allies liberated that concentration camp, he was murdered. <laughs> That's sad, isn't it? 
but how glorious that that man was willing to live and die by his countrymen for the future rebuilding of Christianity in a ruined nation. Can you identify with that? Nobody's putting us in concentration camps, brothers and sisters. From that time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went back. Oh, I believe that he did some shaking and shining, don't you? (laughs) He was salt and he was light. So ask yourself the question here this morning as we close. What is your, is your sequel, is your then, is it a shake and a shine? Think about it. You know, the coronavirus hit in March and then... The candidate that I voted for was not elected. And then I hit a rough spot in my life, in my marriage, in my friendships. And then, can you fill in that blank with a shake and with a shine? And what about this? I joined the church. And then, you hear me? I joined the church. And then, I pray that we will dedicate our lives, our every fiber of our being to shake and to shine. The first and best way that you can get that started if you haven't professed Him publicly and become a part of the church through baptism is to do that now. And we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing some song.